Let's read God's Word. We're going to read, first of all, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, and reading at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into His harvest field. Then we read from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, and reading from verse 16. While Paul waited for them in Athens, he was waiting for Silas and Timothy, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and, and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know more of what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands, and He's not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Rather, He Himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of the land. God did this so that they would seek Him and perhaps reach out to Him and find Him though He is not far from any one of us. In Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Therefore, since God's, we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. 
He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others of them said, oh, I've read on. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. Athens. Anyone been there? A few folk have. It's one of those, even if you haven't been there, it's one of those skylines that you recognize immediately with the, the, the Parthenon there up on top of the Acropolis Hill where the Elgin Marbles used to be before folk from Elgin nicked them. No, not really. Um, by the time Paul visited it in those early years of that first century, it was already ancient. It had a history going back hundreds of years to the Trojan War, back to the time of Homer. It had been the place already that democracy had been invented, where there had been debates, where war and peace had been voted for by the citizens of Athens on the streets. They'd fought the Persians at Marathon and won, at Salamis and won, in those great epic battles that people who sort of remember doing some of that stuff in school might have learned about. They'd won the wars against the Persians. They'd lost the wars against the Spartans. Great names of Themistocles and Pericles and lots of other Cleses went into that whole history of that place. Philosophers had walked the streets of Athens, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and all that was in the past. Poets, playwrights, it was a city of culture, and it had been a city at one time with a huge empire and the greatest navy in the world, although all that was past. But as Paul looked at Athens and saw the temples and the shrines and the statues and the altars, he saw the idolatry. He'd have seen it from a distance, in fact, because up there on the Acropolis at that time was a massive statue that you could see 40 miles away of the goddess Athena. And as you got closer, even into the marketplaces, there would be so many of these temples and shrines and statues. In fact, one of the poets of Athens said, in Athens, it is easier to find a god than a man. Paul saw the godless, godlessness the vacuous pointlessness of worshipping blocks of stone or cults that they had invented. He saw a society that had missed the whole point. As I said earlier, last week we were out on that litter pick, and it was great. Forty of us out for two hours, churches to coming together, youngsters and the not-so-young all enjoying just doing that work together, but also enjoying. One of the things that I just really appreciate as you begin to walk around here, as you get out of your house, is that actually our parish and our community is fairly green, isn't it? Greenways and parks. Sometimes we forget that, but actually we are surrounded by, by nature, and it was good to be out in all that, even if it was threatening rain. But then in the midst of it, you begin to look at it differently. And realize that all this litter, and we filled Fiona's van, we could have filled it about three times, it says something, doesn't it? Society 
that has so little respect for the environment. And not just that, a society where people have so little respect for each other that they will leave broken glass for dog walkers to walk on or for children to play with or whatever else it is. A society where people are so concerned with themselves that they can't be bothered taking dangerous things and putting them in a bin. And it is grieving. Paul walked around Athens as he was waiting for Silas and Timothy. And rather than looking, as he might have done, through the eyes of a tourist, seeing, oh, here's the history, here's the culture, and Paul was a cultured man that knew all this stuff, rather than being impressed with all of that, he looked, as it were, through the eyes of the Lord. Oh, Lord, open our eyes to what's around Open our eyes to our society and our nation, because so often we are completely fixed on ourselves that we stop looking at what's happening around us. A missionary people, and that is what we are called to be as we are called to be God's people in our community, are always a people who look on what is around us and ask, Lord, show me. Show me what grieves you. Show me what thrills you. Show me what's on your heart. And what we're told is that as Paul looked around Athens, he was greatly distressed about all that he saw. greatly distressed. Because as you begin to look at the community that you've been called to serve or the community that God's put you in, even for a short time like Paul was in Athens, you begin to see something of what God is about, of God's compassion. I I, I love that verse that we read from Matthew's gospel where it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. He looked at the people that were out there, and the Bible uses a word for compassion in Matthew's gospel, which which means that Jesus felt it in his guts, the pain of the need of the people around him, the pain of the fact they'd lost their way. And here Paul, as he looks, feels the pain as well. Uh, This week, one of the painful things I did was pick up the reports to the General Assembly that will be delivered just in a few weeks, or a few days actually, to the General Assembly. One of the things they've got are statistics. Uh, Some people are into statistics and some people are not, but the statistics facing the Church of Scotland just now are dire. They really are dire. We now have just about 280,000 members we used to have 1.3 million. The average age of our membership is now well over 60. We are losing 10,000 members every year, about 5%. 10,000 lost last year, and we admitted 400 new members. We are worshiping 
on an average Sunday before lockdown, there were about 85,000 people worshipping in the Church of Scotland on a Sunday. It is now 60,000 and falling. We are running out of people. We are running out of ministers. We are running out of money. Have I got you depressed? But you know, you know, there is a danger. And that's one of the reasons I don't want to spend any longer on those statistics, because here's the danger. That if we are motivated to do mission from those statistics, we are motivated to do it for the wrong reason. Because what we are motivated to do at that time is to say, the church that we love is in danger, and so what we need to do is go out and get those people that we don't love to come in and be part of the church so it can survive because we love the church. Can you see the problem with that? The problem with that is that we are not actually going out into the world to talk to anybody because we love them. We're going out into the world to talk to people because we love the church and we need it to have more members and we need it to have more money and we want to keep our buildings open, we want to keep our church life. So we have to persuade these awful people who won't come to church on a Sunday that they really need to because otherwise what will happen to my guild, my choir, my men's group, my whatever else it is? You know, when Paul went out, we are told he was deeply distressed. And the word that he's, he, he is used here is not a word that says Paul was deeply depressed, but rather it's a word, it, it's the word, same word that, that means paroxysm. It means stimulated. It means provoked. You know when you get worried about something and it doesn't get you down, it actually fires you up. You can't sleep. You're pacing up and down. You, you, you're wondering what you can do. That's what we're talking about here. And it's a word that's used in the Old Testament when it says that God is provoked by idolatry. When it says that God is a jealous God who won't give His glory to others and is provoked by idolatry. And that isn't because God goes around sort of in the huff with it. It's rather because God knows that He made people that they would have a relationship with Him, that they would be in fullness in a relationship with Him, and He's a jealous God because He looks at them, and as He sees them bowing down to idols and going after other things, He knows, and He is distressed as Jesus was distressed. You know, let me ask you this question. I know we get depressed when we hear the church statistics. But when we look at a world out there where 90% of people will not realize that there is a God to worship this Sabbath day, does that distress us? When we go to a world today where people do not know who Jesus is, does that distress us? When we look at a world today which is beginning to lose its way and its values because it's been built on Christian principles and now it's lost, does that depress us? You know, I, I, I read something today which, uh, this week which terrified me. It wasn't from here, it was from Canada, but Canada, which we would think of as one of the most progressive liberal societies in, in the whole of the world. 50% of people polled thought that euthanasia should be available to people who were disabled. 
of those under 35 thought that if people were miserable because they were poor, killing themselves should be an option. That makes me sick to my stomach. What has happened is we have lost something. We have lost something which all of our society used to be based on, and that is that every human being is made in the image of God. Everyone, no matter how weak, is made in the image of God. Everyone is valuable. And instead of that, we bought into an individuality, a, a personal autonomy, where you can do what you want and it doesn't matter. There's much work being done to point out how lost our society is because so many of the things that even our, our humanism and our atheist friends are taking for granted are based on those Judeo-Christian principles. If, if, you, if you want to access it, I've been reading this book called The Air We Breathe, which points out that so much of the things that we take for granted in society, post-Christian society, are based on the gospel. And the more society moves away from that, the more lost it's going to get. We know what happened when societies removed God from it. We've seen it in the oppression of Stalinism. We've seen it in the lostness of the Nazis. Where did they begin? It wasn't with the Jews. It was with the disabled, and it was with the poor. Does that distress us? Because it should do. But that distress doesn't lead to depression. It leads to us getting into line with the God who is already there, for He has compassion on them. And what it needs to lead us to as Christians, first and foremost, is prayer. To actually pour out before God how we feel about that society around Him. You know, as we come to God in prayer and we say, Our Father, what we're asking is, Lord, we want to be in tune with Your will and Your heart and Your love. And by the way, as we begin to do that and we begin to pray, it can put a huge burden on us. Because God's heart is breaking for what is around us in society today. You will never reach the people around you if you don't start by praying for them and praying God's love and God's blessing into their lives. If I were to ask you this morning, which two people most shaped the history of Scotland, I wonder what your answer would be. Sorry? Good answer. I, I think most people, if I asked them that, that's the right answer. You've spoiled it. You've, you've gone to the chase. Most folk would probably say something like, ah, I don't know, Robert Burns or Robert the Bruce or, you know, one of those great people. Or I could get political, but I'll not go there. But actually, I, I think the claim to who shaped Scotland the most over all the centuries are two people. They are St. Columba and the other one would be John Knox. These two people who lived a thousand years apart shaped Scotland as we find it today. Columba began as a monk. Now, the one thing you can say about a monk, you can say a lot of things about monks, but you, the shaved head and all that, you know. But one thing you should say about monks is they are people who live in community of prayer. That's what they're about. 
First and foremost, Columba was a man of prayer, deep in the Celtic tradition, building a community of prayer in Iona, spreading out communities of prayer across Scotland. And that was a whole missionary movement that won Scotland for Jesus. It wasn't the only movement that won Scotland, but it was the main one. Brought Jesus to Scotland and changed society. And they taught the Word. They set up monasteries, places of education. They trained people to go out prayerfully, spreading the good news of the gospel, and they tamed the Loch Ness Monster. No, that bit's a legend. But so much that tamed tamed the barbarity of paganism and made it Christian. And a thousand years later, John Knox comes on the scene to renew and to reform. He led the movement. And again, it was a movement that was <coughs> deep in its prayer. John Knox famously prayed, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. Such was his passion to see Scotland one for Jesus. Give me Scotland or I die. Now, we know the controversies and we know about his preaching, but there was a man who was driven by prayer, driven by a distress for what was there and a compassion for what he wanted to see. And they went out and they brought education and the Word and pioneers and new ministries and they reformed the church and they changed society forever. It was said the Mary Queen of Scots remarked, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Now, we now hear so often of John Knox in his blistering words or his sermons, but actually, at the time, it was his prayer life that was acknowledged. We need to pray. We need to learn to pray for the people around us. Can I encourage you in the days that come to look at Motherwell, Wishaw, wherever you are. Look at the street you live in. Look at the parish. See the lacks. And ask God, first and foremost, to make you have a heart that wants to see the glory of God known, the love of God known, the truth of God known by the people around us. Because if we are going to talk about mission, it has to start there. Not in a technique, not in a plan, but in a prayer. If it doesn't start there, we'll either pay lip service to mission and we won't do it, or we'll be doing it because we have to and not because we want to, or worse than that, we'll be doing it because we want to save our church rather than save the people in the community around us. I believe in Jesus. I believe that He brings life I bring, believe that He brings meaning. I believe that He brings hope. I believe that He brings healing. I believe that He is the Word of the living God. And I believe that if people come to know Him, they will find in Him a blessing, life, meaning, healing, and everything that their hearts desire. And if you don't know how to pray, come and join us on the prayer course, because I don't know either. Paul, we're told began in the synagogue. He began teaching in the synagogue of the places, in the places where people were already interested. They already read the Bible. They already knew a bit about what God was about, and he began to teach them about Jesus and the resurrection. But then he went into the marketplace where there was just people that were passing. You know, we've got a great sort of visual image of that, haven't we? 
the place of worship, and then the marketplace. It's just outside our doors. But actually, when he said that, it wasn't just physically into a marketplace. It was just out there into the world and into the community. And then from there, he went on to debate with the great philosophers of the day. Now, not all of us can debate with great philosophers, but I do think it's important that we know this. The gospel is true. The gospel does not have to hide away from the great controversies of our day. It has something to say and to speak into it. I am not afraid of the Richard Dawkinses and the people who think that they've got it all. We have got answers because we've got the truth of the way that the world is because it's the way it was made in the living God. And no, I can't win all the debates, but there are smart folk in the church and they've got it. So we need to have no fear. Although, again, read some books, find out more for yourself. It wasn't easy for Paul. As he went out and he spoke about the gospel, there were several responses. First of all, there's folks saying, what's this babbler trying to say? There's people who hear about your, your gospel, your love of God, and they just say, this is nonsense. Have you ever had that reaction from folk? You're just talking nonsense. Doesn't make any sense to me, all this faith stuff. And then there's people who just misunderstand it. There's some of the folk who said, he, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Now, why did they say that? This is really quite funny. Well, you're not going to laugh. It's not that funny. You know, the Athenians were basically stamp collectors. They'd got the original Greek gods, and then they met the Roman gods, and they built some extra temples for them. And then they sort of heard from Egypt that there was a Cyrus, and there was another god there, so they built a temple for them. And they were doing that partly because they liked the collection of gods, but also because they didn't want to miss any. This is the problem with having lots of gods. You're always afraid, aren't you? I, I, I might be in with that god, and in with that god, and in with that god, but that god's going to get me because I didn't worship him. And so they were always looking for another god just in case. And they heard Paul talk about Jesus and the resurrection. The Greek word for resurrection is anastasis. And it looks like what they said is, he's talking about Jesus and anastasis. Maybe that's another two gods that we should add in. So they just misunderstood. And we have a world today out there which just thinks, well, you've got a good idea there in your Christianity. Maybe we could add that into all the other things that we believe. And they don't understand that we're talking about the meaning of life itself that makes sense of everything else. Paul comes to them and he says to these people, I see that you're very religious. And I see that because as I went round all your gods, there's that space where you said that's the space for the unknown God. That's where you're going to put the next one. Now what's he saying? I can look at all the things you've got, all the answers that you've got to life, and everybody has answers to life of some description. You can't live without them that makes sense of life and lets you get on with things. But what I see as I look in that is that you've got a hole. You're aware that there's something missing. And I think as we look around our world today, we don't see people that are looking for Christianity, but we do see people who know something is missing. The Epicureans of Paul's day were basically philosophers who said there aren't any gods, so live a good life and uh, have a good time, party on. 
And we see people like that today that are just going from one party to the next, one holiday to the next, trying to fill something, but it's never enough. One bit of materialism to the next. And then there were Stoics, and Stoics said, there's nothing you can do about life, so just get on with it. Step up her lip, but again, there's no love. And we can see that in people today, can't we, that are, are driven by, by duty, by needs, by good works, by the good things that they can do, but somehow there's something missing. And Paul understood that. And he's not saying to them, oh, you've got an unknown God, here's another one. Why don't you come to church as well as all the things you're doing? He's saying to them, I want to proclaim to you the God who makes sense of all of this, the living God, the one that gives you a purpose for life, the one that makes your life whole. And he goes on to say, you know, we don't make gods. This is the ridiculous thing of what you're doing. You're making things, and then you're serving those things. We want to proclaim to you the God who made everything and who came to serve you. We've ended up making a materialist culture and then being driven by it. We work so hard to pay a mortgage, and the mortgages are so high because there's so many people working so hard to pay mortgages. So the prices go up. So we work harder. And so it goes on and on and on, and nobody says stop. I love the expression which said, the problem with a rat race is it doesn't matter whether you win or you lose, you're still a rat. You're caught in the wheel. To proclaim to you the living God is what Paul does. And he quotes to them one of their philosophers, sorry, that's too small, the philosopher that says, we are all God's offspring. And what he's doing here, it, it, it's, it's almost like he's, he's quoting, as we might do, the lyrics of a song. It's very interesting, if you listen to the lyrics of the pop songs of your age, how much they reveal about what's on people's hearts. People that are always looking for love, but never finding it. People who are always looking for the next thing. I, I used to love those lyrics of YouTube, and they still haven't found what they're looking for. But go and look at the pop songs of your own generation, and you will see the cultural analysis of the hollowness. We can't change all of that, but the gospel can. And that is why Paul begins to proclaim to them something very simple, that there is one God who rules the whole of this world, but He has come in Jesus Christ and in the power of His resurrection that He might be known. Folks, do we have a belief in that? Do we believe that Jesus is the answer? Whatever the questions are of whatever society is, do we believe that Jesus is the answer? And if we believe that Jesus is the answer, do we believe that every single person that is out there, every single community that is out there, every single brokenness, every single bit of poverty, every single bit of selfishness, every single bit of emptiness would be met in Jesus? Then let us have a compassion that drives us to prayer. For we have in Christ a hope that the world so badly needs. Amen.